It's the last in the series of the Tough Techs, and we're kind of keeping the best till last. Um, revelation, the end, um, so, so, so to speak. Um, and if you are here today and you're not really up for doing thinking, this is probably not the right seminar for you to be in. But I'm assuming if you've turned up to Tough Text, you're kind of expecting to do a little bit of thinking anyway. Um, so this is, this is the kind of seminar where notepads and phones are welcome. Um, so you can use your phone to take notes uh, and text other people to tell them how great the seminar is. Outside of that, no phones allowed. But um, it's going to be one of those ones where we're going to grapple with some stuff. Um, and hopefully by the end of it, my main aim is to get you excited about Revelation. If you're excited about Revelation by the end, but you still don't quite understand what it's all about, I'm happy with that. If you're excited about Revelation and you leave thinking, I now understand the whole thing, then I have no idea how I managed to achieve that, but I'll be very happy. Um, so what we'll do, just a bit of an icebreaker. If you want to turn to the person next to you or just in groups of two or three and just discuss what is it for you? So some of you here may have read through the book of Revelation multiple times. Some of you may never really have attacked it before. But what for you strikes you as the main problem when it comes to reading Revelation? Why we would include it in a tough text seminar stream? So just talk to the person next to you for a couple of minutes and then we'll, we'll take things from there. Okay, I imagine that's probably given you enough time to at least suggest what one of the main difficulties might be. But let's, let's just have a few. If you want to just shout out what you suggested was... Uh, your main kind of difficulty when it comes to understanding or reading Revelation. What have we got? Highly symbolic. Yep. Anything else? So it kind of, it skips between historical and then jumps to the future. That kind of order-wise, it's just impossible to follow chronologically what's going on. Is that, yeah? That is true. It might be, if you've tried to follow Revelation and tried to read it from beginning to end and put it on a timeline, you will most likely have struggled to do that. That's true, and we'll see why that is. Any others? metaphors yells Matt really loudly um, brilliant yet yeah, there are loads of metaphors involved anything else yeah so he might so John seeing the future so he may well have ended up seeing things like airplanes or atomic bombs but just not realised what they are um, okay that, that, I think those are a few suggestions of things that make revelation difficult just a quick survey um, I don't know how it works at your different churches whether you're in for sermons or not but who has ever who remembers ever their church either doing a preaching series or in your youth group maybe doing a Bible study series on the book of Revelation and not just the letters at the beginning? That's what I thought. Okay, very, very few. Um, the reason being, it is a difficult book to understand. It is probably the toughest book in the Bible, so I'm kind of half grateful, half a little bit annoyed that Andrew decided to give me the book of Revelation. It's just like, let's just let Dan do Revelation and see if he can deal with it. Um, but it's, the, it's probably the toughest book in the Bible for us to understand because it's just so different to what we're used to. It's just completely a different kind of style of writing to anything we're used to. No one writes like that nowadays. You wouldn't t if, I mean, if you got an email from a friend and it was written in the style of Revelation, you'd assume it was spam. It's just, it, we don't tend to write like that anymore. And as a result, what you can end up getting are two reactions. Some people are so fascinated with it that they try and come up with all of these charts and graphs. And seriously, if you, if you want to kind of give yourself a headache, just go onto Google Images and type chart of Revelation and you will come up with some stuff where I have no idea how they actually came up with that, but they'll chart out the end of time, and they'll say it's going to happen, the, the Christ is going to return in 2050 on the 5th of April at 7 o'clock in the evening just after dinner. And like they've charted out these incredible maps, and you're just looking at it going, how on earth do you get that from the book? And so that's one reaction, but actually the opposite reaction, which I would assume is probably more our danger is to actually just ignore Revelation and go, it's complicated, it's weird. To be honest, we know Jesus is coming back one day. I'm really not too, too bothered about all the details. Let's just leave that and we'll read the Gospels and Paul because we love them. They're much easier to understand because we can relate to them, but Revelation is just weird. And so you steer clear of it. And we, we end up thinking we just can't understand it. But what I want to convince you of today is that Revelation, whilst we might not be able to get under every single detail that comes up in the book, can be understood, and it's not something to be scared of. And that's kind of my aim for the next 40 or so minutes. I'm going to try to get through the material so we've got a bit of time for questions at the end. Um, so if I'm rushing at any point, that will be why, because you probably have loads of questions as I'm going. But I'm going to try and convince you over the next half hour, 45 minutes, that Revelation can be understood and can be used as an incredible way of worshipping God and just looking about his character, just the, the songs we were singing in the big top this morning, I just remember kind of, I, I, I could just, I could list the lines in those songs that I think that's coming from Revelation. That's an idea out of Revelation. That's an idea about Revelation. And so you're singing about the kind of thing that Revelation teaches all the time without necessarily realizing it. 
And what I want to try and convince you of today is that is the case. And so hopefully, when you get back home, or if you're really keen, later when you get back to your campsite, you can pick up Revelation and read through it and enjoy reading through it and enjoy wrestling with it rather than being absolutely bamboozled by everything that's going on. So does that sound like a good idea? You're up for doing some thinking? Good. Brilliant. It's last day, so last leg, but um, we're definitely going to be doing some thinking, but I'm going to try and make it as interactive and dynamic and fun as possible. So first thing we need to ask is what is Revelation? So if, I, if you read a book or you read any kind of writing you will generally be able to tell what kind of writing it is. So if I was to say, once upon a time, what kind of text are you, are you expecting? Fairy tale. Everyone knows that. Did you have to do A-level literature to figure that out? No, because you're brought up in an environment where the phrase, once upon a time, means here comes a story that's not true and will end with happily ever after. And we know that in real life, that doesn't tend to be as straightforward as that. So it's a, it's a make-believe story. It's a fairy tale. Now, the problem with Revelation is that when we start reading Revelation, we don't have the kind of once upon a time at the beginning or anything that would help us to realize what's going on. But actually, if you'd lived 2,000 years ago, you would have been in a world where actually the kind of symbols and metaphors that come up in Revelation would have meant something to you. In the same way that we hear once upon a time, we think fairy tale, they'd have heard certain numbers and certain symbols and thought, I know pretty much exactly what that's talking about. Um, so part of the danger is we need to try and get around what kind of writing Revelation is. And I've got a bit, little bit of a kind of book giveaway. This Has anyone ever heard of John Hosier? Anyone from CCK here? Okay, okay a few people. So, uh, or from, is he, he's in Bournemouth now, isn't he? So anyone who knows him. He has written what I think is probably the most helpful little book on Revelation. Unfortunately, it's out of print. So unless you want to spend 30 to 50 pounds on Amazon for a second-hand version, I'm not kidding, that's how much it costs now, I am willing to give away my copy. And the way we're going to do it is, sorry, if you're over the age of 19 or you're a youth leader, you're not allowed to answer. Or if you've done impact, you are not allowed to answer this question. We'll see, depending on how many hands go up as to whether we do a second round. But can someone name the, the style of writing of the book of Revelation? Yes. Sorry? Not quite. The style of writing, almost, I think you were up next. Apocalyptic. You get your hands on, if you could pass that back. What's your name? Daniel. Good name. Dan's a good name. Daniel's a good name. Okay, that book is really, really helpful. Um, so if you manage to find it secondhand for cheaper than 30 quid, I would get it. If not, it might, there might be a book in the bookshop called get Straight to the Heart of Revelation by Phil Moore. If you didn't if you weren't lucky enough to get that in, in the prize and you're not able to convince Dan afterwards to part ways with it and lend it to you, you can buy a copy of Phil Moore's book on Revelation, which is also very good. Um, it's apocalyptic writing, which is completely different to what we have nowadays. It's imagery. It's not meant to be taken literally. I, hope, I, w I would hope that you don't open up Revelation and assume that everything in there is meant to be taken literally. If you do, the first point of application today is please don't do that or you will end up having nightmares and you will also end up misunderstanding the book quite seriously. So it is not that there, there is not literally going to be a beast that comes out of the, of the channel and ends up coming onto land. It would be a little bit obvious that that was the beast at that point. And the way John writes it is he says, this is a mind that, asks for wi that needs wisdom. It doesn't take much wisdom to realize that that's the beast if you've got a massive monster coming out of the sea. So it's not meant to be taken literally. It's actually very metaphorical, lots of imagery. It's a little bit more like this. Does anyone recognize... Oh, that's not great. It's not very clear. Does anyone recognize this painting? Who knows what it's called? The Scream. Does anyone know who painted it? Yeah? Excellent. Edvard Munch. And I think it was called Der Schrei, because it, it sounds so much cooler in German. Um, that is a picture of a scream. Now... I think you'll agree with me, it doesn't actually look very realistic. I mean, it, who, who looks like that? Has anyone ever seen a, a, the sky do that kind of thing? Has anyone ever seen someone with a head quite like that? But if you were to put a picture of that and then a picture of me standing next to it screaming, I reckon this picture would probably convey the emotion of a scream much more effectively than me standing there going, ah, would do. You'd probably get a good laugh if you saw a picture of me screaming, but you wouldn't get the emotion that comes with this. Revelation's a little bit the same. When you're reading it, it's not just about information in your head. The actual imagery in it does something to your emotions. 
So you're reading, and that, that is one of the reasons I love Revelation so much, is because it conveys in a very emotionally charged way what Jesus has done for us at the cross. And so you can end up singing songs and talking about nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. And with the imagery of Revelation, it does something to the emotions which a just saying it straightforwardly doesn't do. So that's one thing to realize. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's a little bit more like this than it would be a realistic painting or a photo. The second thing is to realize what apocalyptic imagery does. Has anyone ever heard of an apocalypse kind of related to it? What do people think apocalypse means? Sorry? End of the world? Who, who would say end of the world? Okay, I am very sorry to say that you are all wrong. The word apocalypse actually means an unveiling. It, mean, it means revelation. But we associate apocalypse with end of the world because of the book of Revelation. That's basically the way we've done it. And so when John's writing an apocalypse, he's not primarily writing primarily about the distant future end of the world. That's in there. We'll see when we get to the last chapters in the book. It's definitely there. What he's primarily doing is unveiling something. He's uncovering what really is on, going on behind the scenes. So, for example, has anyone ever seen shadow puppets? You know, you've got this kind of screen where people, and there's a big light shining, and people are making signs, like probably not that. They'll probably do much nicer signs. But there's, you, you get a particular picture on the screen. If you were to take the screen away, you would see something completely different. That's essentially what Revelation's doing. It's saying, let's look at all of these events that are going on on Earth, and rather than looking at it from a worldly, earthly point of view, let's strip away the screen and look at it from heaven's point of view. So Revelation is about looking at heaven's point of view on events, very general events and things that are going on throughout history. Make sense? Yeah? So next time you hear Apocalypse... Chances are the person who used it meant end of the world, but we all now know, and we are now that much more clever, we know that it actually means unveiling or uncovering. So another thing to realize, so we've got, it's apocalyptic imagery, so it's very kind of metaphorical. We realize it's actually about unveiling, so it's a little bit more like, Andrew's not here, so he won't realize I've nicked this illustration from him. It's a little bit more like an x-ray than it is a crystal ball. So Chris, everyone thinks of Revelation, they think crystal ball, looking into the future, Actually, Revelation's a bit more like an x-ray. You're seeing through something and seeing on what's going on behind the surface. You're getting heaven's perspective. So it's an apocalypse, but it's also a letter. It's a letter that John, who's a church leader about 2,000 years ago, writes to seven churches because he's told by Jesus to do so. Now, that's really important because what it means is that what you get in Revelation would have been helpful to churches living 2,000 years ago. And actually, a lot of the ways that people teach Revelation nowadays, if you Google it, Google, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, please do not use Google. The way that a lot of Google pages teach it, you would look at it and think, that has absolutely no relevance to people living in the first century, because it's talking about 21st century events. Interestingly, every single century has seen the book of Revelation talking about events of their day. Um, but John is writing to seven churches who were around in the first century, which tells me that it's going to be relevant to things that they're going through. And actually, that makes Revelation actually more relevant to us than less. If Revelation is not primarily about finding out exactly which person is the Antichrist or finding out exactly which president of the United States is around when Jesus returns, that actually makes it more relevant to us because it's actually much more general and broad than it is specific. So you read a lot of the imagery... And you, would, you could recognize, actually, you can often recognize figures of the day from the first century behind. But what you realize is actually what you're seeing is a general principle, which actually applies to every single generation of the church. So it's actually really, really relevant to us today. And it really helps us to engage with God in worship. And hopefully I will show you how that is when I kind of give you a bit of an overview of the book. And there will be bits where I get very excited and you will be able to tell that those are particular parts that have affected me and hopefully you will get excited as well at that point rather than just going why on earth is Dan getting so excited up there I don't understand what's going on so everyone following so far good stuff okay so if we figured out what kind of writing revelation is we now need to figure out what the message of revelation is and this is going to be very nice and quick the message of revelation is not here is the beast and we've now figured out which particular person the beast is, and so therefore we can calculate the exact date of Christ's return. That's not the message of Revelation. The message of Revelation can be summarized in five words. 
God reigns and Jesus wins. That is the message of Revelation. God reigns and Jesus wins. And that is a message that is appropriate and helpful for every single generation, every single situation, every single person. There is not one person here for whom the book of Revelation doesn't have huge relevance today because it communicates the fact that God reigns and Jesus wins. And that's what we're going to see, hopefully. So, if we, don't know, if we now know what Revelation is and what its message is, how do we go about reading it? So, maybe again, just have a bit of a, a chat in your groups and think, what do you think are some particular things we might need to be aware of as we read through Revelation in order to try and make sense of what's going on? So just discuss. So we've thought about what's difficult about Revelation. Think what might we need to be aware of in order to actually be able to understand it. Okay, any ideas? Any ideas of things that we might need to be aware of and at least explain before we have a chance of understanding what Revelation's about? Anyone want to suggest something? Context? So do you mean like historically when what was going on when it was written? Excellent. Yeah, so it really, really helps actually to know what is going on at the time. Um, just to give the game away, what's going on at the time is we're towards the end of the first century, about in the 90s, and the church is starting to face pressure from the Roman Empire. It's worth being aware of that because a lot of what goes on in Revelation is immediately helpful to those churches in that situation. So persecution is there and is about to get worse. Excellent. What, other, what else might we need to know? Excellent. So we might need to know some prophecies that have gone in the past. Um, excellent suggestion. If you know your Old Testament well, you will understand Revelation more effectively. So that big chunk of the Bible you have at the beginning that we call the Old Testament, and we're very often tempted to skip, apart from the Bible, Bible um, stories that we get in Kids Club, it's really worth trying to get to grips with that. Now, that's quite a daunting prospect, so to make it easier, does anyone here have what's called a cross-reference Bible. Yes. Or actually, if you've got a phone, that might actually... If you've got a Bible app on your phone or a cross-reference Bible, what those things do is you can read New Testament passages or Old Testament passages, and in the margin or in the footnotes, I imagine if you click on it on your phone, it will give you a list of references where there are similar ideas elsewhere in the Bible. And if you're reading through Revelation and you're reading a bit of imagery and you think, I wonder if the Old Testament can help me on that, if you have a cross-reference Bible... You can look in the margin and see if there's a particular text in the Old Testament that is being used as imagery for that. So it's worth the investment. I reckon down, download an ESV or an NIV with cross-references onto your phone, or if you really like having the big leather-bound Bible in your hand, which feels good, doesn't it? It's like this massive thing. Everyone knows you mean business. If you turn up to the Tough Tech seminar with your giant leather Bible, everyone's either going to be very intimidated by you or think, okay, or, or just be like, they may be showing off. But get one of those Bibles. That's a good way of becoming familiar with the Old, the Old Testament images that are used in Revelation. Any other suggestions? Excellent. So understanding the imagery, what that would have meant to the original readers. Now, there is no quick, easy solution to this. Sorry to let you down. But, again, you've come to Tough Tech, so you're probably up for thinking. So you may well be up for going away and buying yourself something called a commentary... And I mentioned Phil Moore earlier. He has written a very helpful, easy-to-read commentary on Revelation so that you can look at a chapter and go, I have no idea what that number or that symbol is supposed to mean, but Phil Moore's very clever and gets up at 4 a.m. every single day and reads through the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and therefore has written something that I can now read and understand. We need to understand the symbols. Um, just to show you a, a bit how this works, two numbers up there. 9-11-1260. When you saw those two numbers, who here immediately knew what 1260 referred to? No one. Who here immediately knew what 9-11 referred to? Okay, pretty much everyone. Which is interesting because 9-11 refers to the time where the, the, the twin towers were um, crashed into by a couple of planes and they fell. Um, which is interesting because that's not even the way we write the date in UK English. We would say 11th of September. We do it the other way around. But there is something associated with that number that is so profound and so earth-shattering that we immediately know what it means. It would have been the other way around for people in those days. They'd have seen 9-11 and thought, what on earth is that? That's a random combination of numbers. They'd have seen 1,260 and probably screamed and run to, to hide. Because every time... This is... A particular number worth knowing, any time you read in Revelation 1,260, which is approximately three and a half years, if you look at it in days, or 
when, when you ever read of something that's three and a half days, or other expressions which are meant to indicate the idea of three and a half or 1,260, you do not need to be confused anymore because what that would have meant to the original hearers is an intense period of suffering. Because there was a time in the past, in the, in, as Jews, where they had suffered under the persecution of a foreign empire for 1,260 days or three and a half years. So in other words, they're reading that and they think, oh my goodness, something a little bit like 9-11 kind of significance is going to happen in terms of the level of suffering involved. Does that make sense? So it's worth just, there are some broad symbols such as the sea, which refers to the turmoil of the nations. Mountains and horns generally refer to power. Crowns generally refer to authority. 144,000 generally refers to the complete number of God's people. A few symbols that are worth knowing about and if you know those, it just makes the journey a little bit easier. Everyone happy so far? Good. Okay, and the final thing, which we're going to basically spend the next, hopefully, 20 minutes doing, and then we'll have a bit of time for questions, is to understand how the whole book fits together. If you want to understand Revelation, please do not focus too much on the details. Try and understand how the whole thing fits together. And that might not be immediately obvious... Um, so we're going to go through the whole book of Revelation together over the next 20 minutes. We're going to get some of you acting out various bits, some of you doing some shouting. We'll make sure that we shout louder than their music was. Um, and just hopefully get you to understand how the whole thing fits together. Has anyone ever seen one of those photos where, kind of mosaic photos that are made up of loads of little photos? So there could be like a photo of my face and you're looking closely and you realize that my left nostril hair is actually the picture of one of my friends from last summer who happened to be standing against a dark background. Have you ever seen those photos? If you look at one of those photos, the real thing that really counts is the overall picture. If you get bogged down with what is my nose hair made up of, you're not going to appreciate the overall picture. It's worth sometimes looking in and trying to figure out what all the different bits are. Oh, is that a picture of um, a mountain? And so on. But the main thing we want to understand is the big picture, which is what we're going to go for today. Um, and before we jump in, to help me illustrate this, sorry, you've turned up and I had to pick up on you. Matt, can you come up the front? Can we please give Matt a round of applause as he is about to kick a flamingo all in front of you. I just noticed this and thought this, this could work as what I need to use it for. Um, any football fans here? Okay, a few. I'm not a huge football fan, but I understand broadly how it works. You kick a ball around and you're supposed to put it between two posts. Um, Revelation is not meant necessarily to be read beginning to end and assume that it's all chronological. It's a little bit more like an action replay. So let's imagine Matt is in the World Cup final and is about to score the winning penalty. You guys over there might need to duck. And so that's the ball represented by an inflatable flamingo. And so Matt is going to give his best kick. I think that counts as a goal. Okay. So Matt has scored, winning goal. Everyone goes crazy because he's just scored. Excellent. Now, what happens if you're watching football on TV after that point? Does the game just immediately continue? What happens on TV? Replays. So there will be another shot where... Matt will be slightly rotated and end up kicking the flamingo that way, it seems. There'll be another shot where the camera is so close to his feet that you can't even see his head. And what will happen is over the next minute or so, if it was a particularly good goal, there will be replay after replay after replay. Now, we know we're not supposed to look at that and think, wow, seven goals in a row, that's amazing. We're supposed to look at that and think, that's the same goal played on loop. That's what happens a lot with Revelation. Matt, you can go and sit down. Read him a round of applause. No flamingos were actually harmed in the making of this seminar. <laughs> okay, is everyone ready for an overview of Revelation? Running through the whole thing. And we're going to try and whiz through as quickly as possible. There are some particular parts that are more helpful to understand in detail than others, some that aren't quite as much. So we'll whiz through the bits that are really quick and easy, and we'll spend maybe two or three more minutes on the bits that are a bit tougher. Um, and you guys will have to do some shouting at one point. So... Chapter 1 of Revelation, I've called The Unveiling of Jesus. John is, on, is exiled. He's an early church leader. He's very old. He's exiled on an island called Patmos for the sake of the gospel, because he's been preaching the gospel. And he receives a revelation from the risen Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, does anyone know what happens to him? Excellent. Jesus says, write some letters. Now, write some letters to these different churches. Now, the appearance of Jesus is the reason I've got a sun at the back is it says his face was shining like the sun. This is not meek and mild Jesus that we often 
kind of, I don't know, popularly refer to. This is the conquering risen king who refers to John. And John, who may well have been one of Jesus' best friends, who had kind of ended up leaning on his chest at the Last Supper, ends up hitting the deck when he sees him. Has anyone ever fainted here? Has anyone ever fainted and broken their nose? Okay, earlier this week, my flatmate did that. He got up, I think he went to the toilet, got off the toilet, and then there was this massive thud from the bathroom. And when I saw him later that day, he just had this bit of blood on his nose, and he'd fallen over and broken... He had no control over what happened from the point where he fainted. That's what happens to John when he sees Jesus. He doesn't bow down in reverence, he hits the deck. Because that's what encountering the risen Jesus does to you. Your body just cannot cope anymore. But then what Jesus does is he puts his hand on his shoulder, which has got to be pretty cool, and says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. Which is a pretty encouraging thing to hear when you are basically a leader, in ch- leader of churches who are about to face very serious persecution and potentially be put to death. You hear Jesus is alive forevermore. And he says, don't be afraid. That's chapter one, the unveiling of Jesus. And essentially, Revelation follows from that, where we get next two chapters, Jesus' messages to seven churches. Jesus, the, the whole of Revelation is written to all of these seven churches, but there are kind of individual little messages at the beginning for the next two chapters. If you've read Revelation through, this is probably the bit that you would have maybe understood a little bit more. And Jesus basically says to each church, here are the things I like about what you're doing. Here are the things I don't like about what you're doing. Here's what you need to do. And to the one who conquers, I will give a reward. We're not going to spend much time on those, but it's essentially Jesus writes a message to the different churches. And it helps us to understand the kind of things that might be going on in terms of the context of Revelation. Because we get letters referring to immorality, we get letters referring to persecution, we get letters referring to lukewarmness, churches who have just lost their zeal for Jesus, churches who have lost their zeal for proclaiming the gospel. And so we realize these are real-life churches, and John is writing a letter to them containing the whole of a load of visions that is meant to help them. When you see, think of Revelation, please, please, please do not think about theology textbook. Think about real-life relevant stuff that helps churches who are facing serious pressure and persecution. So that's chapter two. Chapter four, we are going to slow down a little bit. Chapters four to five, I've called God reigns, Jesus wins, which for those of you who have been paying attention, you will notice is exactly the same as what I said the message of Revelation was. Chapters four to five is the backbone of Revelation. If you take chapters four to five out, the whole thing crumbles. So it would be a little bit like having a human being with no spine. It would just be kind of a jellified mess on the floor. If you take chapters 4 and 5 out of Revelation, the whole thing falls apart. And here's why. In chapter 4, this is really where the visions of Revelation start, where you get all of the bizarre imagery going on. John sees the throne room of God. And he sees a throne, and he sees angels worshipping around it. He sees 24 elders who probably represent the, the, the whole church, gathered around the throne worshipping him. So you guys in the kind of pit over there, you can be the elders for the bit that's going to come up. Um, and they're kind of gathered around the throne praising him. There are four bizarre-looking creatures whose it might may well be represent the whole of kind of animal life, praising him. And they're all sing. Does anyone know what they sing, actually? Round of applause for this man, please. They sing day and night without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is, and who is to come. And extra Bible geek points for whoever can answer this next question. Does anyone know where else in the Bible you get that particular chorus? Anyone else apart from this guy? (laughs) Yeah? Sorry? When Jesus meets Paul? Oh, oh, when he's born. Um, You actually get Hosanna in the highest when he's born, but nice try. It's in the Old Testament somewhere. Yeah? Uh, Yep, Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Isaiah gets a vision of heaven. And he sees angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The angels have been singing for 800 years by the time John is writing, at least. And I imagine they've been singing that for eternity past. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That it, heaven has not got a boring worship service. You never get a slightly kind of, you know, one of those slightly dry um, worship moments where you, where you think I just like 
I'm, I'm struggling to connect with God right now. That does not happen in heaven's throne room. Because day and night, everyone is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's chapter 4, and that's God reigns. He's seated on his throne, sovereign, everything worships him, and he is in absolute and utter control. That is incredibly good news for churches who are about to face persecution and need to know that God's in control. And chapter 5 is about Jesus winning. So there's a little bit of a odd imagery in, uh, in chapter 5 where it says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. So it'd be a little bit like this. John sees a scroll in the right hand of, of him who was seated on the throne. So in God's right hand. And he says, I saw a loud angel proclaim, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls? And it says no one was found worthy to open the scrolls. And then John starts crying because no one was worthy to open the scrolls. Has everyone ever read that or just heard that and think that's a little bit of a strange reaction to a piece of paper not being allowed to be opened? It's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? You kind of think, why would, why would a grown man cry when a scroll cannot be opened? The reason John cries is because the scroll metaphorically represents the unfolding of history. As long as that scroll remains sealed, so sealed with wax, by the way, not amphibious creatures. Um, funny story, my, um, at, my, at my cousin's wedding, my uncle was doing the father of the bride speech and talked about how their, their youth group had painted this big kind of overview of the Bible on the, on the wall of their, um, of their youth group place, wherever they met. And he got to the end of it, kind of towards the end, and he saw these kind of otter, seven otter-like creatures at the end. And he turned to his daughter and said, Bryony, what are these? She said, what's the seven seals of Revelation, Dad? That's not the kind of seal we're talking about. We're talking about seals that shut things and no one is found worthy to open it. Which means, if no one's found worthy to open it, history will never come to its climax. Which means, as far as John's concerned, persecution and opposition will keep on going. There will be no redemption, no judgment, no hope. That's worth crying about. It would mean that everything we are doing here today is completely futile if the scroll of the unfolding of history remains shut. But then what happens is one of the elders, so one of these guys over here, in fact, if you guys could stand up, because you will need to be stood up for, for part of this. One of the elders goes up to John and he says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls. Now that's good news. There is someone who is worthy to open the scroll. There's someone who's worthy to unfold history and have his say and bring it to its climax, which means there will be redemption. There will be judgment. There will be reward. It's all going to end well, at which point John turns around and sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, a dead, slaughtered mess, mess of a lamb. And he turns around and he sees this. He's, he's turning around probably expecting to hide under his bed because of a massive lion. And he turns and he sees a tiny little mammal that's been killed. What on earth is going on? What's going on is that the way that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered is by becoming the lamb that was slain. And the interesting thing is, and here is where I need your participation to shout and we will drown these guys out. You guys, the elders, if you could... Oh, we can't see the colour difference. The first underlined bit, I would like it if you guys could shout out as we get to it. And the red underlined bits, everyone is going to shout out. Just to give us a little bit of a preview kind of a million times smaller of what it might be like to be in heaven at that point. It says, When the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So you guys now should no longer be standing up. They fell down, fell down before the Lamb, not sat down comfortably, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying... Then I looked, and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Who remembers singing a song with those last few lines in? To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Be blessing and glory and honor and power. That's where it's taken from. 
I don't know if you've ever asked the question, what makes heaven sing a new song? Heaven doesn't get bored, as we saw with the holy, holy, holy chorus, of singing the same song on loop over and over again. I have been in church services sometimes where we've sung the same thing on loop, and it's got to the point about three or four minutes in when I think, can we sing something new now? Heaven never gets bored of singing the same thing over and over again. But here we're told that heaven sings a new song. And as far as I know, it's the only place in the whole Bible where heaven's throne room sings a new song. What is it that does that? The answer is the apparent defeat of who the Romans thought was a fake pretend king in about AD 30 by the apparent defeat by crucifixion As far as the world was concerned, they looked at it and they thought, that means Rome wins. That means Rome has won. They've defeated who we thought would be the king, and we're just going to go away. And if you were a disciple and you were looking at Jesus, Jesus hanging on the cross, you would probably have heard the cry, it is finished. And instead instead of understanding that as now sin has been paid for, you would have thought, yeah, it is finished. It's over, Jesus. You've basically ended up exactly the same as every single other person who claimed to be the king of the Jews. It's over. Heaven looked at the cross and saw something completely different. Heaven looked at the cross and saw something so cataclysmic, so triumphant, so all-encompassing, so unequivocal, so powerful, so absolute, that they wrote a new chorus in their songbook. Heaven saw the... The world sees the cross and says, Rome wins. Heaven sees the cross and says, Jesus wins. And so that song we were singing earlier, our God, you are Christus Victor, the undefeated man. Christus Victor is about Jesus winning the victory at the cross. And that is exactly what Revelation 5 is about. And so next time you sing those songs, you can remember this is a song taken from the very throne room of God's, where the whole of the throne room and the whole of creation look at the, the lamb who was slain and they say, that is the way that Jesus has won. The apparent defeat has turned out to be an incredible victory. And if those two chapters are in place, the whole of Revelation stands together because it means there is one who is worthy, Jesus, to make sure that history comes to its climax. Everyone happy with that? You may have realized that that's one of the chapters that gets me excited. Just probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. So just for your your information. We then get, we're going to go through this quickly, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Um, This is the bit where Revelation doesn't always go in chronological order. So in chapter 6, you get seven seals being opened. And every time you open a seal, something cataclysmic happens, such as a star dropping from heaven or a third of the earth dying. Now, don't try and understand all of the ins and outs of the little details or try and associate it with, I don't know, a a particular war or a particular genocide. What's going on in chapter 6 and in chapters 8 to 9 when there are when there are seven trumpets blown, and in chapters 15 to 16, when there are seven bowls of wrath poured out, is in general terms, history is being overviewed as played out under God's sovereign hand. John is basically seeing, recapped three times, an overview of history, and each time, all of these things come from heaven, which doesn't necessarily mean that God is the immediate cause of every single catastrophe that happens, but it does mean that he is sovereign over the whole thing. That's essentially what happens. You've got three cycles of seven going on, and they represent the unfolding of the whole of history in very, very, very general terms. Please do not try and understand what every single one of these seals or trumpets refers to. That would defeat the point. It's the overview of history, and God is in control because the lion of the tribe of Judah has won. But as you're reading through those chapters, you might end up thinking, this is getting really depressing. It's just judgment after judgment. Is there actually any hope? And what you get kind of interspersed throughout these chapters are chunks which look in a bit more detail at how the church and the world relate. So chapter 7, you end up getting a vision of a multitude from every tribe and every nation and every language standing in front of the throne of God and crying out, salvation belongs to our God. Again, that reminds you of a song? So many of our songs have been taken from Revelation. And what John is seeing there is the fact that there is a day coming where every single person who has put their trust in Christ, whether they are from here or from France or from Spain or from the US or from Pakistan or from Morocco or Algeria or from China or Japan or Malaysia, wherever, are standing before the throne crying out, you're the one who brings salvation. And it tells us that the church is secure throughout all of these plagues that are being poured out, symbolizing kind of judgment and natural disasters that go on. The church is kept secure. 
really important to realize when you are undergoing intense pressure in your life, you are safe because God has put his stamp on your forehead. That's the imagery that's used in Revelation 7. We then get chapters 10 to 11, which is a, a, a little bit of an odd section where chapter 10 seems to be about, um, about John prophesying, but chapter 11, you get two witnesses who end up performing loads of signs and wonders for three and a half years. Anyone remember what three and a half years refers to? Terrible suffering. Probably just another way of referring to the whole of history because the church gets persecuted throughout the whole of history. But throughout a time of terrible suffering, they are proclaiming the gospel. And then they end up getting killed. And they lie there for three and a half years. And you think, are they lying there for another three and a half years? It's probably just another way of looking at the same thing. The church proclaims the gospel, and very often people will get killed for the sake of the gospel. That's going on simultaneously. But what then happens is they're raised from the dead to life. God is saying to his people, keep proclaiming the gospel, even when it costs you your life, because you will be resurrected and you will be vindicated. Again, exceptional news. If you are facing terminal illness, or if you are being persecuted for the gospel, or you are facing a situation in your life that you do not want to be facing, keep going. Keep on going, because you will receive your reward. And in chapters 12 to 14... Talk about chapter 12, it talks about the overthrow of Satan at the cross. He's using the imagery of a dragon, and he ends up getting overthrown at the cross, and the result is that the accuser of the people of God has been thrown down and has no authority in heaven. Anyone know the song before the throne of God above? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Revelation 12 says the accuser has been stripped of his role of accuser. But the result is that he is very angry and he ends up running after this woman in a chapter which symbolizes pursuing the church and trying to basically stamp it out. But the woman is kept safe, which again means the church will be kept safe. It might cost our lives, but we will be kept safe. And then what happens in chapter 13 is that's where you get 666 and the beast, which I'm very wisely going to just not go into much detail about lest you have loads of questions afterwards but essentially what's going on in that chapter is the devil uses ungodly empires to try and achieve his purpose and the ungodly empires will try and make god's people worship the empire or worship the emperor or worship a particular figure but what then happens in chapter 14 is john turns around and he sees 144,000 people clothed in white with the lamb the people who follow the beast have the mark of their beast on the forehead, which is just another way of saying they worship this particular worldly empire or this particular thing. The 144,000 on the mountain have the stamp of God on their forehead, and they worship the lamb, and they have been kept safe through it all. And that's kind of, I suppose, interludes in the middle of all of this judgment that goes on. Everyone following so far realizes there's a lot of well-speed, um, well-pool of information, but if you're taking notes, hopefully you can look back at it later and process it all. Chapter 7 to 18, Babylon will fall. Very quickly again. Anyone, Babylon, uh, does anyone know what role Babylon plays in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Yeah, she's referred to as the mother of all harlots in the King James Version, which, um, or mother of all prostitutes, which basically, Babylon in the Bible is a place where God's people were held captives for 70 years. Kind of uh, the epitome of evil empires, basically. And what happens is John has a vision of a prostitute sitting on a very large scarlet beast, um, and when he sees her, he it says he marveled greatly, which I think is basically just the Bible's way of saying he like, just stood there gobsmacked. Has anyone ever seen something before which they thought was so impressive they couldn't actually talk for a while? Though you might have seen the Grand Canyon or something, and you're just like, I struggle words here. Or a particular girl's walk past you, and you're just like, uh, I now go all kind of like flimsy and limp, and I don't know what to say. Essentially, that's what's going on with John. He's seeing this incredibly powerful, incredibly beautiful person sat on the back of a dragon, and he's like, oh my goodness. And the angel turns to him and says, why are you marveling? She looks good on the outside, but actually, she is rotten on the inside. And in chapter 17, you get this description of basically a city, which is represented as a woman, which by extension refers to any ungodly empire again, represented as this incredibly beautiful person, in chapter 17 and then in chapter 18 it's represented as basically this rotten mess that god is going to judge anyone ever had one of those things where you you think an apple looks really nice on the outside and you bite into it and it's just disgusting 
That's what's happening in Revelation 17 to 18. It's saying that thing that you've put your confidence in, one day that is going to be destroyed. That's going to be shown for what it actually is. The curtain's going to be drawn back and you will see that the, the God of sex or of money or of, celeb- or of idolatry or of what, whatever it is that you put your confidence in that isn't Jesus will be shown to be of no value whatsoever. And so it's again warning the church, probably specifically warning them against putting their trust in Rome, but by extension warns all of us, do not put your trust in anything that is not going to fulfill except Jesus. And that's what they're being told. So again, incredibly relevant. At which point, we are then wrapping up things here. Chapters 19 to 20, the white rider and the white throne. I had to find a picture of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings for this. Uh, Everyone seen the, um, the two towers? Yeah, so you've got this incredibly large battle going on in Helm's Deep, and then at one point Gandalf just appears on the brow of this hill, and suddenly there's this light behind him, and this army runs down after him, and they just destroy all of the orcs, and they end up winning. I'm pretty sure Tolkien was thinking of Revelation 19 when he wrote that. Because in Revelation 19 and 20, what you get is a white rider, who is Jesus, who returns and comes back to judge and to destroy his enemies, and then in chapter 20, you get a white throne, which again symbolizes judgment, where the dead are judged and are given, given their, their due, basically. Now, when you think of judgment in the context of being a Christian, what do you associate with that? Is that a positive or a negative thing? Don't think what the correct answer is. Think what would you immediately think? Negative. We probably think negative. We think judgment is basically God getting really angry and killing all of his enemies. And just, uh, although we might not think of it in such a caricatured way, it's easy to think of it like that. The reason we often think of judgment as very negative is because in the main, in the West, we have probably not, as a whole group, suffered huge injustice. But if you are in, I don't know, if if you happen to be someone living in Rwanda just after the genocide, and your family has been killed and tortured in front of your eyes, the idea of God returning one day and putting all things right is incredibly good news. Judgment is not just something that the gospel helps us escape from, it is part of the gospel. The fact that one day God is coming back to restore all things and put all wrongs right, that's what judgment is, biblically. It's not just meeting out punishment, it's putting everything that was wrong right again. That is exceptionally good news. Because Jesus has looked and he has seen every single murder, he has seen every single bit of injustice, He has seen every single rape victim. He has seen every single person who's been abused. He's seen the Holocaust. He has seen the Rwandan genocide. He has seen every single ethnic cleansing. He's seen every single little bit of injustice. He's seen torture. He's seen pain. And he is absolutely furious, and rightly so. You would be too if you had seen it all. And so Revelation 19, you might read it and it looks scary, but it is exceptionally good news because it's saying Jesus is coming back And when he does, justice will be done. No one who carried out the Rwandan genocide or who carried out the Holocaust will get away with it. That is the good news of the judgment of God. Justice will be done. And the good news for Christians is, do you realize where we are actually in this chapter, in this picture? We're not these guys with the lances trying to stop. We are actually following Jesus in this particular chapter on white horses having been cleansed. We join in in the victory, which again doesn't mean that we're literally going to be riding out of heaven and killing people. That's definitely not what's meant to be understood by this. But what it means is we participate in Christ's victory. We're not the ones being destroyed. We are the ones who get to be united with Christ in his victory. And everything is judged. Justice is done, at which point... We get, I, I couldn't think of a picture for this because I don't think there is a picture that does justice to this idea. We have had 20 chapters of essentially carnage, which in symbolic language is portraying the overview of history and the fact that the church is kept secure even through suffering and the fact that the Lamb has won and God is reigning. And this is the point where we suddenly see the climax of all things. I'm just going to read it out. And John says, after all of this judgment and return of Christ, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Remember, the sea represents the turmoil of the nations. It's not literally that there'll be no surfing in new creation. It means there will be no more war where the nations are in turmoil against each other. Again, if you're living in a country where you have been ravaged by war, that is such good news. 
I remember one of my friends um, was out in, um, in South Sudan a few years ago when everything kicked off out there, for those of you who are aware. And um, he came to a service and I ended up praying with him. And I ended up pr- we ended up praying about something that's actually found in Isaiah 2, which talks about there's going to be a day where spears are made into, plowsh- into pruning hooks and swords are beaten into plowshares and peace will cover the earth. And he ended up re-praying that in modern language, and I just thought it was such a helpful illustration. He said, I thank you, God, there's going to be a day where tanks are turned into agricultural items and when barracks are turned into museums. And I just thought that's such a powerful way of expressing what's going on. There will be no more sea. There'll be no war. There'll be no death. There'll be no injustice. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's us. It's the church coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There is a day coming where the whole of creation is restored. And we are physically raised from the dead. And we're probably going to look at each other and say... Do you remember that thing called death? That idea that you stopped existing at one point? Do you remember that thing called suffering? Do you remember that thing called crying of sadness? I've been crying a lot recently, but it's, gen- it's been tears of joy. I cannot remember what it's like to cry with sadness. The imagery is incredible. It's, again, not meant to be taken literally as a city coming out of heaven. It's meant to say in very powerful, emotive language, there is a day coming where death will be defeated. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more suffering. There will be no crying. There will be no broken hearts. There will be no family breakdowns. There will be no divorce. There will be no idolatry. There will be no immorality. There will just be bliss because we will live in God's presence on a newly created earth. And John, a little bit later in this chapter, goes, to des- goes on to describe the measuring of this city. And kind of last Bible geek points for who knows what particular shape this city was. Anyone? You over there, you have answered many questions today, but what? A cube. Maybe you might know this. Do you know where else in the Bible something is portrayed as shaped as a cube? The Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament is portrayed as is, is, is a cube. In other words, John is saying the whole of new creation, the whole of the church is the Holy of Holies. It is the place where God's presence dwells. It won't be through a mirror. It won't be through a, through a mirror or a glass dimly like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it will be face to face. There's no need of a temple in heaven because the whole place is a gigantic temple where God's presence dwells and we will live with him and every single person who has suffered will be personally comforted by him. Every single person who has suffered injustice will receive their reward from him. Every single person who has put their trust in Jesus and has endured to the end will get well done, good and faithful servant, now enter into my kingdom. Revelation is about God reigning and Jesus winning. And because Jesus wins, we get to look forward to this. And because Jesus wins, we get to know that we can go through whatever pressure or difficulty of life. It doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it means that we have a perspective on things, that God is in control, and one day all things will be made new. Revelation is about God reigning and Jesus winning. It is incredibly relevant, and it's worth taking the trouble of wrestling with. Cool. We have ended up filling up the whole time, so we won't have time for official Q&A, but I'll be sticking around here for a few minutes after if you do have...